Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 366th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. We know them, of course, as AHEMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about peer-to-peer reviews, and what makes this, of course, very interesting is when there is no face-to-face contact with a patient. You know about that. And yeah, we're talking about a virtual peer-to-peer review. <laughs> yeah, virtually speaking. And joining us this morning to report our lead story is going to be Terry Fletcher. Also on the broadcast will be Rhonda Buckholz. Rhonda will be reporting on the need to create a culture of compliance in coding and documentation. That's a very, very important subject. Also, Lori Johnson is going to be reporting on the 2020 proposed rule for psychiatric facilities. Now, that rule was posted by CMS last Friday. And for my talkback segment, I'm going to continue with part two of the meeting I recently attended on electronic health records and patient safety. Looking forward to your reporting on that very important meeting. We have much to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to attend a webcast on navigating the perplexing rules that govern ICD-10 coding for obstetric services. It's tomorrow, April 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Save $30 with the coupon code TUESDAY when you register using the handout tab in today's broadcast. Here now is Tim Powell. Hi, Chuck. And as we reported last week, according to Assistant Attorney General Brian A. Benkwitz, the, of the Justice Department's Criminal Division, Philippus Formas orchestrated one of the largest healthcare fraud schemes in U.S. history, defrauding Medicare and Medicaid to the tune of over a billion dollars. Sadly, even if the amount of the fraud in the Formas case pans out as being true, it would barely make the top five fraud cases in the last 10 years. The fines against pharmaceutical giants like GlaxoSmithKline's stunning $3 billion settlement in 2012 dwarf Mr. Benkowitz's estimate. It's also very unlikely that regulators will recover more than pennies on the dollar of any of the fines that are finally assessed in the Asformis case. One of the common threads in this case is the fact that physicians were willing to take money in exchange for doing something other than caring for patients. Physicians were paid to prescribe drugs or refer patients to certain facilities in return for cash and other remuneration, also known as kickbacks. Some of physicians in kickback schemes like this are eventually charged. Many of them are not. What is the answer to reducing kickback fraud among doctors? First, you have to realize how easy it is to hide and rationalize kickback payments. The pharmaceutical industry often hired physicians to come to speaking engagements and paid large speaking fees would travel to exotic destinations. Physicians think this seeming payment for services will appeal normal to the outside world, and even if someone does find out anyways, they think, I'm a brilliant physician and I'm really being paid what I am worth for speaking. In the case of Mr. Asformis, he was convicted in part for paying physicians as administrators in return for referring patients to his facilities. We can see physicians thinking that this is a common practice to pay them to provide administrative services to nursing homes, and who can prove that the payments were in return for steering patients to the facility instead. In the 1950s, criminologist Donald Cressy came up with this hypothesis to explain why people commit fraud. 
there were three key elements in the fraud triangle, and the key elements are opportunity, perceived pressure, and rationalization. In terms of the perceived pressure for money, even for physicians and businesses like Mr. Esformis that seem to have as much money as they could need, they seem compelled to keep committing fraud. I'm reminded by a line from the movie Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. Shia LaBeouf asked James Brolin in the movie, everybody has an exact number, what's yours? And James Brolin smiles smugly and replies, more. And with that, I'm pitching it back to you, Chuck, but I will also be at the HFMA event May 20th through May 23rd in St. Petersburg, Florida, if you would like to say hello in person. Thanks very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's April 23rd, 2019. It is the birthday of William Shakespeare, and you're listening to the 366th edition of Talk Down Tuesday. Stand by. If you're looking for cutting-edge coding education, peer-to-peer collaboration, and engaging discussions, look no further than AHEMA's Clinical Coding Meeting. Join your peers in Chicago September 14th and 15th for a unique blend of education, covering CDI, Revenue Cycle, Professional Services, Facility Services, Coding Updates, Compliance, Auditing, and Innovation. Advanced registrations receive a free copy of AHEMA's Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 Codebook of your choice. Visit ahima.org slash clinical coding for more information. Save $100 with early bird pricing by July 15th. Ahima hopes to see you in Chicago September 14th and 15th. Now's the time for the Tech 10 Tuesday Coding Report, and for that we turn to Senior Healthcare Consultant, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. I've been frequently checking the CMS website for the inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule for fiscal year 20, but it's still not there. CMS has released the inpatient rehab facility fiscal year 20 proposed rule and the inpatient psychiatric facility fiscal year 20 proposed rule, which is my focus today. According to the IPF proposed rule, psychiatric facilities and distinct units should be looking for an increase in payment for fiscal year 20 to the tune of $75 million in total. A large portion of this proposed rule discussed the updates to the wage index, which is going to be updated to the 2016 base year. The the market basket will be updated to a 2016 base year as well. From a coding perspective, Four diagnosis codes were added to the poisoning comorbidity list. Two procedure codes were added to the oncology treatment comorbidity list. There are 17 MSDRGs that are part of the IPF reimbursement methodology. The diagnoses that are not part of MSDRGs are listed in addendum A. And let me repeat that. The diagnoses that are part of MSDRGs are listed in Addendum A. If you report a diagnosis that is not part of these MSDRGs, then your facility will receive a per diem payment, but there will not be an MSDRG adjustment. CMS made no changes to the quality reporting measures for inpatient psychiatric facilities. A measure was proposed for fiscal year 21, which is medication continuation 
following psychiatric discharge. This measure applies to patients with a principal diagnosis of major depressive disorder, schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder. It assesses if the patient has filled at least one evidence-based medication prior to discharge, which is defined as within two days of discharge, or during the post-discharge period, which is 30 days after discharge. This is a claims-based measure that has some exceptions. It has a performance period of two years. CMS is also asking for feedback regarding a measure for the patient experience. Most organizations are using hospital consumer assessment of health care providers and systems, HCAPs, for this assessment. Provide your feedback to CMS. The URLs for the IPF, PPS, and the inpatient rehab facility fiscal year 20 proposed rule are available in the handouts tab, and you can also see it in my article. Still, no proposed rule for inpatient prospective payment for acute care facilities, so we're still waiting for that. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori, thank you very much. And as Lori said, you can read her outstanding reporting on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. So here's a question. Why is it becoming increasingly important to create a culture of compliance for coding and documentation? Well, to explain, here is Rhonda Bocals. Good morning, Rhonda. Good morning, Chuck, and thanks so much for having me back. When we talk about healthcare, compliance is a large part of our duties. And when you combine that, especially with the coding and documentation realm, uh, it really um, can send some nightmares for us. And there's so many regulations. Um, especially with the, the coding in, environment um, and, and directly relating to physician documentation. But when you think about the regulatory bodies that are out there, we have our MACs, um, we have CERT audits, we have recovery auditors, we have um, uh, our PSCs, our program safeguard contractors, uh, we have um, the ZPICs, um, we have the UPICs, we have supplemental Medicare um, review contractors, uh, we have... Um, so many uh, regulations that um, then when they come back and they audit us and they look for things, it's post-payment reviews, reviews that were improperly paid or, or high-risk claims, um, review services um, that should have, if they should have been approved um, by CMS in the first place, recruitment for denials. Uh, we are heavily regulated and it scares all of us tremendously in the healthcare world because at any given moment, the government can come in, shut us down, impose um, multiple fines on us. And so what we tend to do is create uh, a system of overregulation, and um, we create a lot of rules, a lot of policies and procedures. And so we create rules to go along with the rules, um, which at first glance sounds really great, and I'm all about being a compliant organization. It's necessary to have those rules and regulations. It's so easy for us to follow the seven elements of um, the compliance plan that the OIG has put out um, and, and to be able to um, develop and monitor those policies. But the one thing that we actually forget to do in our practices is actually build the culture of compliance. And the culture of compliance is extremely important in our organization. And 
uh, to, to just kind of put it into perspective, in 2017, over $260 million was paid out to whistleblowers. And so it's really important for us to not just post rules and regulations, but to actually open up for the culture where people feel free to be able to bring up problems, to bring up conflicts, um, issues that they um, think or perceive might be there, and for us to actually be able to address it um, so that they don't have a fear of retribution, so that they feel like their voices are heard. Um, There's simple steps that you can actually take that um, kind of lessen that uh, risk of a disgruntled employee, right? treat everyone with respect, make sure that their voices are heard, um, really um, uh, make sure that your employees feel valued and empowered. And, you know, we always make the joke that um, teamwork makes the dream work. And that's extremely important for us here in healthcare. Um, there's a really good book out there that I absolutely loved reading. It was called The Five Dysfunctions of Teams. And they outlined um, how you need to create some po- uh, positive, productive tensions. A lot of us hate conflict. And so um, there's a, a lot of ways that um, we can, you know, work on our teamwork to be able to create that culture, um, you know, work um, on trust, um, allow that conflict in your practice as long as it's productive um, conflict. Make sure your employees um, know that they're committed, that you're committed to them. Um, You also have to make sure that you hold people accountable. If someone brings um, forward an issue or you find an issue, you've got to make sure that you take the appropriate action um, that results from from that uh, behavior. Um, and then really pay attention to the details. That's how, at the end of the day, you can actually mitigate uh, your chances of a whistleblower in your organization and begin to build that culture of trust and compliance in your organization. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Rhonda. I think compliance and truth is a good thing to have all over the place, not just in the hospitals. That was Rhonda Buckholtz. Rhonda is the Chief Compliance Officer for Century Vision Global. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Rhonda, thank you very much. And you can read Rhonda's reporting on this very important topic about creating a culture of compliance in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Our lead story this morning is about peer-to-peer reviews that take place when there's no face-to-face contact with the patient. Now, these are virtual reviews, and these reviews pose some unique problems. Here to explain it is nationally recognized professional physician, coder, and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. So what are some of the problems? Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, we've got some interesting issues when it comes to the virtual services. So in keeping with our theme of communication-based services, as you'll remember last month, I spoke about virtual visits to the G2012, which allows physicians and other qualified healthcare professionals to be reimbursed for a virtual check-in with established patients who aren't sure whether or not their symptoms warrant an in-office visit. Those virtual check-ins may be audio only or two-way live audio with video or other kinds of data transmission. And if the check-in does not lead to an office visit and does not occur within seven days of a prior E&M service by the billing practitioner, it can be billed as a standalone service. So this week, let's take a closer look at the interprofessional consults and referrals that do not include a face-to-face encounter with a patient. The six CPT codes describe assessment and management services conducted through telephone, internet, or electronic health record consultations 
furnished when a patient's treating physician or other qualified healthcare professional requests the opinion and or treatment advice of a consulting physician, again, or other qualified healthcare professional with specific specialty expertise to assist with the diagnosis and or management of a patient's problem without the need for the patient's face-to-face contact with the consulting physician or qualified healthcare professional. CMS decision, CMS's decision to unbundle the existing codes increases efficiency for patients and providers because it eliminates the need for separate, costly, and inconvenient specialist appointments or a phone or internet-based interaction between the treating physician or qualified healthcare professional and consulting physician with specific expertise is sufficient. Also, two new CPT codes were added this year for reimbursement that were not previously available for the treating provider's efforts in initiating the consult. So the 99446 to 99449, that's the Interprofessional Telephone, Internet, Electronic Health Record Assessment and Management Service provided by a consultative physician. So this is the consultative physician's uh, codes. This includes verbal and written report to the patient's treating or requesting physician or other qualified healthcare professional, and they're based on time. So the first code is 5 to 10 minutes, then it goes on to 11 to 20, 21 to 30, and 31 minutes or more. And this is considered a medical consultative discussion and review. In 2019, so this year, they came up with 99491, which was added for written report only, no verbal. So there doesn't have to be a verbal communication. And then the last code, 99452, this is the treating or requesting physician's code. And this is the um, information for 30 minutes of that interprofessional telephone, internet, or electronic health record referral service. A patient may be new to the consultant or an established patient with a new problem or an exacerbation of an existing problem to the consulting provider. However, there are global days that do come with these services, and this is some of the pitfalls to just be mindful of. The consultant should not have seen the patient in a face-to-face encounter within the last 14 days, or if the health record consultation leads to a transfer of care or another face-to-face service, such as surgery or an EM visit or procedure within the next two weeks or 14 days, or the next available appointment, they also cannot be reported. But if more than one call or communication with the consultant is needed to complete the consultation request, so discussion of test results or visits, then the entirety of the complete service and accumulation of that discussion is what's reported with a single code. Also, CMS stated in their final rule that you would not report these codes more than once in a seven-day period. So what are these services in effect? They're peer-to-peer review. So when a patient's treating or attending a primary physician requests the opinion and or treatment advice of another physician, again, with a specific specialty um, expertise or opinion above and beyond that of the treating physician, and they're assisting with that diagnosis or management of that patient. Also, what's great about these codes is that these services are not subject to the telehealth rules or restrictions Medicare has put on other telemedicine services that include that geographical location or originating site requirement. Also of note, when the sole purpose of the telephone, internet, or electronic health record communication is only to arrange transfer of care or other face-to-face services, then do not report these codes. A couple of rules just to be mindful of. First of all, the billing practitioner. Billing for interprofessional services is limited to those practitioners that can independently bill Medicare for E&M services. Through the descriptors for the codes 99446 to 99449 and 99451, only include assessment and management services provided by a consultative physician in the descriptor. However, the text in the final rule, this is what helps with doing your due diligence, this includes consultative qualified healthcare professionals as well. 
So as long as the consulting qualified healthcare professional is eligible to independently bill Medicare for A&M services, then they can bill for the service. The code 99452, this is only for the treating physician or treating qualified healthcare professional. Then don't forget about consent. Verbal patient consent must be documented in the patient's medical record for each consultation. The patient's consent must include assurance that the patient is aware of their cost sharing because there is a share of cost. Providers must collect a requisite copayment from the patient for each service billed as with all Medicare patients for Part B services. And lastly, the benefit of the patient. I found this an interesting entry in the final rule. The consultation must be undertaken for the benefit of the patient because the patient is going to be responsible for the cost sharing. CMS is concerned about distinguishing these interprofessional internet consultations from those undertaken for the edification of the practitioner, such as information shared as a professional courtesy or continuing education. So make sure it is for the benefit of the patient from a cost because of the cost sharing, but also from a treatment standpoint. Try not to miss out on this revenue opportunity, and you'll find more information in my article that dropped this week. Back to you, Erica. That was really fascinating. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional physician, coder, and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Terry, thank you very much for an outstanding report. And you can read her story in this morning's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Thanks again, Terry. Now it's time for a very popular segment here on Talk Dan Tuesday, and that's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, you are going to continue with part two of your meeting a couple of weeks ago. I am indeed, Chuck, finishing up with lessons learned from my law medicine course regarding EHRs and safety. It amazed me to learn that the vendors include in their contracts hold harmless clauses, which essentially pass the responsibility and liability onto the user, and non-disclosure gag clauses. These prevent users who find issues from publicly sharing their concerns. We are even prohibited to take screenshots. And then a lawyer from the doctor's company, which describes itself as a medical malpractice insurer with the M-A-L scratched out, and a director of accident and forensic investigation from the ECRI Institute, did a joint presentation talking about EHR-related errors. My take on it is that the EHR is usually a contributing factor as opposed to the sole cause of a bad outcome, a la the Swiss cheese model. And if you're not familiar with the Swiss cheese model, it's like taking multiple pieces of Swiss cheese, putting them atop one another, and eventually there'll be one hole where all the whole, you know, various holes line up and something can actually fall through it. So that's the Swiss cheese model. The EHR may have auto-completed F-L-O to Flomax, but the provider had to click on it, and the pharmacist didn't register that it was an elderly woman with nasal congestion getting the medication, and the nurse didn't recognize that the patient had been prescribed Flomax instead of Flonase and didn't bring it to the doctor's attention. So that's the Swiss cheese model. One of the cases which set off bells in my head was a faulty interface with the um, pharmacy system. A properly executed order to discontinue anticoagulation didn't get transmitted to the pharmacy system, so the patient received eight extra doses. And so what happened was it was properly ordered and executed, 
but there was some problem with the interface between the orders entry system and the pharmacy system, so the pharmacist never saw that it had been discontinued. The IT department indicated that next planned system uh, upgrade was going to remedy that. It seems to me that this kind of a thing is a sentinel event and should have prompted, like, immediate resolution. Check out my article from last week for some interesting toolkits regarding recommendations for a health IT safety program and for the use of, you know, my very favorite uh, enemy number one, copy and paste. We also had a speaker from the Office of the National uh, Coordinator for HIT, and there was a proposed rule regarding changes intended to increase innovation, reduce provider burden, advance interoperability, and promote ease of patient access. I have included in my article the hyperlink to be able to give your comments and input on this proposed rule, and Chuck informs me that it was moved up from May 3rd to June 3rd, or moved back, um, the deadline being extended for 30 days. Several speakers discussed certification and how the vendors get quite a bit of leeway. They know the questions in advance, the testing has no limit, and if you fail certification with one entity, you are welcome to try a different one. This seems kind of hinky to me. The co-director of the Law Medicine Center, Sharona Hoffman, has physician burnout as her area of interest. It is characterized by emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and dissatisfaction with one's work accomplishments. One of the primary factors in physician burnout specifically is the EHR, including documentation requirements, extension of work into home life, and EMR function, uh, functionality. Two solutions that she suggested were Scribes and the direct primary care payment model. You can read everything in my article this morning. And I made my way through lots of associated reading materials, and I posted my thoughts and the references in last week and this week's article. I hope some of you take the time to check them out. And uh, that's all I've got for you this week. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. And by the way, that is an outstanding article. It's a two-part article. You can read part two in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Excellent article. We've asked our panel to stick around for a roundtable discussion on today's Talk 10 Tuesday. And I, in a couple of minutes remaining, I wanted to uh, circle back and talk about something that you might have heard Clark Anthony mention uh, earlier in the broadcast. He was talking about a webcast tomorrow on OB Coding. That webcast is at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. It features uh, Beverly Lambert and Jeff Morris. And, Erica, I was thinking about OB coding because I was thinking about you. Why is it so complicated? Why is it so complex? Well, you know, I actually had done um, one of these webinars for you guys before, uh, two of them, actually. And it's it's interesting because the, the gravid patient, you're taking care of um, actually two patients, and it's... Uh, the coding is somewhat different than anywhere, uh, anyone else. It, you know, it, almost every single pregnant patient should have an O code as their principal diagnosis um, or primary diagnosis if it's outpatient, uh, unless it's an incidental pregnancy, which is so unusual because almost everything either is complicated, complicating the pregnancy or the pregnancy is complicating um, the, the condition. So you need to have an O code. And then and you, you always have to have enough codes to tell the whole story. So it's just very complex. And, you, you know, you have to make sure that you're doing it during the right trimester and so on and so forth. Um, Chuck, I'd actually like to ask Terry a question, if you don't mind. Um, Terry, I was interested in uh, the, 
what are the documentation requirements for the consulting physician? So I understand, like, that the, the consultant has to do some sort of a written report, which is kind of obvious. But what does the consulting physician need to document to be able to use this code for their piece of it? So if I understand what you're asking, so all of the codes except for one are for the consulting physician, so the one that the primary doctor is calling. And so they need to basically have almost just like a a return discussion that they're sending back to that primary doctor that requested the consult. If it is the treating physician that's asking for the consult and that correspondence, then both physicians have to have something that is in E&M form that really talks about why they were coming, what the, the request was for, and then an outcome or at least a treatment plan. Unfortunately, it's not specific to guidelines. It's more just we're giving, I guess, our professional opinion as this is what it should cover since technically it is a consultative service. But that's a great question. So what I'm hearing is that the consulting physician will need to do some sort of a note or an addendum or something um, stating why they think it's important to bring in this person. And I would suggest that they literally say this is for the benefit of the patient. Um, because I would I think agree that- with that. Yeah, because you, because I think it's very interesting, and I think it's actually a really good point that it's not for the edification of the physician. It is for it is in the patient's best interest to get that second opinion, even if it is done virtually. And the written report is probably no different than if you saw face to face or if you did it virtually. It's like explaining the information that you reviewed and what you thought of it and what you needed, to, you know, what needed to be done from there. Yeah, I think you're correct. And also, just the last point, uh, because the final rule used the language you said. As far as it needs to be uh, for the benefit of the patient, it's always good to use CMS language. So I agree with that. Yep. Good. Thanks, everybody. That's going to be your wrap for our 366 edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our panelists today, Rhonda Buckles, Terry Fletcher, whom you just heard, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, and, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. Be with us next Tuesday. That's when the legendary Rose Dunn is going to return with a glimpse of possible new job opportunities under revenue cycle management. You can always listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and IC10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.